um, um, books. So uh, there are uh, four books that we're going to read in the class, and uh, I'd like you to have uh, three of them. Uh, the fourth one is uh, not to me. It's a very, very good read, but it's not something that I think is worthy of keeping. Uh, to me, you ought to keep keep these three uh, because uh, um, I think you can occasionally reference them. So um, uh, we will read all four. The process that I'm going to use is uh, I'm going to take... I'm going to take you through two of them, and then collectively, as a, as a class, uh, you're going to take the rest of the class through two of them. So, like I, you know, you'll pick up a chapter or two and just present those chapters, and then um, you know, go on from there, um, just to get. And and my intent there is to get you to interact with the material, so that you become more and more familiar with it. Uh, and if you're, you know, if you're uh, fearful of standing in front of people, it's not like this is uh, Yankee Stadium on a Saturday night, the World Series. So it's a small group, and uh, probably you could just do it from your you know, pews, I guess. But uh, it's just to kind of force interaction. Uh, uh, so that's kind of my intent there. You watch me do too. And, and essentially as I go through it, I, I'm just doing a synopsis. Uh, I'm doing a quick um, uh, look at uh, the book and then obviously moving on. Um, so uh, does anyone uh, not have Pink's Attributes of God? You don't have it? So... Um, um, I'd like for you, if, if at all possible, if it's not possible, like you're going through tough times, just to reimburse the church for the book since you're going to hopefully keep them. Uh, and the price is on the back. And don't give me the money. I don't really handle money. You just put it in collection plate. Um, um, and again, if your budget is so strained, I'd rather you deal with the material and the church just have a ministry in your life through you know, through providing you good literature. Um, to me, that's the more important thing. Uh, uh, Palmer's, um, Palmer's Five Points of Calvinism. Anybody need that? Okay. Um, oh, my gosh. Usually they... Oh. It's 14 bucks. So none of these are terribly expensive. But again, if you... I, I don't, you know, much rather you um, have the book. Um, um, Janar, do you um, uh, do you need books? Do you need books for the class? I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we we read four books in the class. You're going to the class. You're going through the class, right? So, uh, uh, do you have Pink's attributes of God? You have it. A redemption accomplished and applied. 
Yeah. Anybody else? You have this one. Yeah. Uh, uh, Janor, if you're able to repay the church, the prices on the amount, just put it in the collection plate. But if your budget's strained, uh, don't don't worry about it. I'm not I'm not concerned. You know, I'm not concerned about um, um, I'm sorry. How much? That's always strange. So, um, so, so, so you should have three books: um, Attributes of God by Arthur Pink, Five Points of Calvinism by Palmer, and Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Oh, good. Everybody's good. Um, does everyone have a copy of my book? Okay, so we will do a little bit of reading than that. Um, of course, I would encourage you to read the whole thing, but we will do just a little bit of reading in it, uh, mainly in the message chapter. Uh, essentially, um, the content of this class at large uh, contains what I would call a uh, systematic theology. Um, and one of the reasons uh, I do that is because of the criticality of understanding what systematic theology is. Uh, very few have been written in the past um, 50, 75 years. But if you were to take any Reformed theology open to the contents, you would see chapters, for example, on the attributes of God or the person of God, uh, which are the attributes of God. Uh, you would see a, a chapter on uh, the work of Christ, uh, redemption accomplished and applied. Uh, you would see... Um, uh, references to the form faith, i.e. five points of Calvinism, uh, might not refer to it in, in those particular terms. Um, Calvin never, uh, uh, Calvin did not come up with five points. It's an extraction from his theology. Uh, and then we're going to read a book on the doctrine of the church or uh, ecclesiology, um, um, Again, there's always a chapter on ecclesiology and systematic theologies. Do a little bit of work. Uh, it's not a, necessarily a book on it, uh, on uh, church government. I, I think that'll be in uh, uh, the book that I'm just going to pass that to you. And when you're when we're finished with the class, you'll just turn it back in. To me, it's not it's not worthy of keeping or having, but it but it is a very good read. Uh, it's called Life in the Father's House. So. Uh, so let's talk momentarily about the role of systematic theology. When we say systematic theology, what we are doing, uh, what scholars have done, and what we should do, is we establish broad major categories like, say, eschatology, the doctrine of future things, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, um, 
soteriology, the doctrines of salvation, uh, um, uh, the person of God. They take these broad headings and they extract from all over the scripture uh, the verses that establish what is, in our case, essential to the Reformed faith. So, that's a, so, the, so if you think of the word systematic, it's just systematizing critical doctrinal areas. Okay? Um, let me illustrate that. Um, if someone comes to me and says, well, what kind of church is this? Well, I'm, I'm going to say we, we are a reformed church. vast majority of people don't really know what that label means. But if you know what it means, then you know exactly. You don't have to ask me. Uh, do you believe in particular redemption? Do you believe Jesus was God? You don't have to ask me because I've just told you with that label. Well, that's essentially what systematic theology is doing. It just systematizes these critical areas that are absolutely essential uh, to your faith and really the propagation of the faith uh, to your children, maybe uh, children's children, uh, people you share the gospel with, so on and so forth, because they, they essentially are the content of faith. Now, uh, you're never going to read in Scripture... Uh, Jesus saying things like, uh, I'm, I'm giving you now a systematic theology. Uh, because that wasn't his job or intent. That's the job of the church. It is the job of the church to take the scriptures and pass it on to successive generations. One of the best ways to do that, systematic theology. Yeah. Uh, and that's why the label is so critical. Uh, um, it's rare that I will tell someone that this is a Calvinistic church, not because I'm trying to be deceptive, because they don't even know what that is. Um, but if you're Reformed, you, that should immediately tell you a lot of things. You don't have to go and um, ask me questions like, well, do you believe God is sovereign? Because I've just told you with the label. Um, and it is important that we extract uh, not only from the, the uh, doctrine of the Reformed Church, but also see its validation throughout history. Okay. Because one of the questions, whether this is explicit in your mind, it should be implicit, you should always be asking, is when you say you're a Reformed Church, uh, is that validated throughout the centuries? If, if the Reformed faith is true, I believe it is, then we see it in, in, in history or church history. Okay? Um, and it's, and it's very interesting. Obviously, the first century church believed these doctrines. It was corrupted because that's what men do to the truth over the centuries. God recovers it in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, yeah, because God's always going to maintain a witness. He's always going to have a remnant. Sometimes it's tiny, tiny. Sometimes it's a little bit bigger. I mean, that waxes and wanes according to his work. That's, that's again, not to be crude, but that's his department. Uh, I don't, uh, 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 I don't uh, create the church. He does. 
I don't create the theology. He does, and he leaves us a record in Scripture. But he gives us the, us the duty to study it that we might um, uh, rightly understand it and pass it on, which is to me the essential. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I have this nagging suspicion that the evangelical church is losing that because we've come to believe that uh, theology is divisive and we certainly don't want to be divisive. Well, you know, if you study the New Testament, Jesus was a radical, divisive figure. But if you're God, that's your, <laughs> that's, that's your work. And he's certainly dividing um, the false church and the true church. And he expects his true church to receive from him an understanding of his word. Um, because the scriptures contain everything that's necessary for faith and life. Um, my trouble is, I don't think we're passing that on. I think the Reformed Church is. I think the church at large, you know, we're so caught up in numbers and programs and making people happy and feel good. Nothing wrong with those things. I mean, I want people to be happy. I want them to feel good. But that's not my department. You know, God, God got us to do those things. I, uh, he, he tells me what to do, and that's to proclaim the truth. And... Uh, uh, imperfect being that I am, I do it imperfectly, but at least I'm pointing someone uh, to a perfect direct object, namely him. Uh, because he is the sum of all perfection. Uh, so, um, I take that as a serious task, and and, and, and and therefore the work that is here is is serious, and it's a work that should cause you to pray that we would do it rightly, to pray for the uh, teaching elder, to pray for the other elders, to pray for people in the congregation that you know you become aware of that maybe are in some distress. Uh, generally, all of us are at different points in our lives. At least that's my experience. Um, because that's how, that's how the church prospers. Yeah. So, uh, but again, that is your... That is your duty, and it's also kind of your your freedom. I mean, I don't really tell you who to become friends with. I hope you uh, fellowship with everyone in the church, but there are some people that you would just naturally gravitate to because they—I mean, that's just the way life works. Um, um, and and uh, in that friendship, you can uh, uh, maybe uh, ladies to ladies and men to men form prayer partners and. Uh, uh, develop confidences that, uh, you know, if I tell Bowersock something he and I ask him, uh, you know, to keep it personal, he's not going to, you know, share it, blah, so on and so forth. Uh, because, again, uh, uh, we, we, we trust the Spirit of God to use the church um, to uh, prosper uh, everyone uh, individually as well as corporately. Uh, the church is a corporate body, but it's made up of individuals. So, um, so um, uh, uh, the class is kind of my attempt to push you gently into all these areas. But don't be uh, don't be concerned by oh my gosh, Barsox is taking us through a systematic theology, and uh, I, I'm so uh, fearful of causing division. Um, I'll just come hear the sermons and 
not really have a clear understanding of what the church uh, believes and why it believes those things. Uh, to me, that is a that is an important duty you have. Okay, it's and, and it's not something you should take lightly because it is the word of God, and it speaks of Him, and um, you know He's not the man upstairs. Okay, He is the Lord of everlasting, eternal glory. Uh, so we should have a, have a mer- have a measure of uh, seriousness in our affection towards Him. Uh, I will tell you that if you understand him properly and aright, uh, your affections will be changed for him. Okay, which is which is to me an essential part of worship. Um, um, we're all affectionate to certain people because we're drawn to their personalities or whatever. Uh, I would hope that that you will develop a profound affection and veneration uh, for God, so that in a measure, uh, I will I will try in our study to help clarify uh, who God is. And 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 if you already know these things, I mean, I, I certainly get that too. Uh, the other the other precept that is critical to to systematic theology is that we we get it from the scriptures. Uh, so it's scriptures are the word of God. That's where we go. Now we also go to history, uh, but history is not authoritative per se. It's just validating. Uh, I, I was thinking about that uh, this morning as I was uh, driving to church. Uh, when you study the Reformed faith, certainly uh, in the early centuries, uh, 17th, 18th, uh, uh, Protestant Reformation uh, and its after effects. Um, you don't read of the Reformed Church speaking in tongues. Okay, uh, I believe they do because it's not a it's not a valid gift for today. It was a gift uh, of literal Gentile languages. If you think about the Book of Acts. Uh, they were listening, uh, the men that were there were Jews of the diaspora, so they had been living in Gentile lands. They come uh, to Israel as they were supposed to come, and here the disciples are speaking to them uh, in languages that were unknown to the, to the apostles, like uh, people who were present when the Spirit was poured out. Uh, uh, they had this supernatural gift from God to speak in these Gentile languages, and uh, technically speaking, they didn't know those languages. Uh, does, that, does that make sense? So, tongues are known languages, and essentially, uh, the language is to announce judgment, the finality of judgment upon Israel uh, as a nation for rejecting Messiah. I mean, you go rejecting the things that God has done. Corollary to that is judgment comes. And it's not only going to come in the future, it's already in the present. Because um, God uh, extracts accountability. And that's why understanding the doctrines of grace are so important. (laughs) You know, I mean, uh, that's a fearful thought. Uh, But 
uh, behind God's accountability and judgment, for us there's God's sovereign grace. So again, uh, we grow in affection for him because of what he's done uh, for us and in us. Um, so again, if you go through those centuries, uh, you know, why why wasn't the Reformed Baptist Church in uh, uh, England in the 1700s speaking in tongues? Because uh, I think they understood that. Uh, uh, in the 1800s in America, as the uh, Presbyterian Church, which was at that time Calvinistic, um, and, and certainly you have you know Princeton Seminary with men like Charles Hodge and Benjamin Warfield. Uh, 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 why weren't they teaching class? Why wasn't Princeton Seminary teaching classes on uh, speaking in tongues? Uh, because they just they they believed it was a gift of faded because God God acknowledged the judgment. Uh, it's not, it's acknowledged on several chapters in the book of Acts, uh, but once its purpose was fulfilled, it just slowly fades. Yeah, because they, because they believe that. Uh, so, Presbyterian churches in America, uh, certainly 1800s, you just weren't preaching, they weren't speaking in tongues. So church history, what are they saying? We don't believe it's a valid gift for us. Should that speak to us in some way? It should cause us to focus attention. Because, well, if they weren't doing it, I wonder why. Maybe I need to investigate this. That's why church history is really a corollary to systematic theology because it's a validation that our systematic theology is true. And that's critical. If I can't find my doctrines in the history of the church... Something's probably wrong. Okay? Something's probably wrong. Because God doesn't do new anymore. Okay? Uh, there's nothing new under the sun with God. He doesn't do new. So this notion of the Pentecostal charismatic movement certainly kind of had a measure of revival in California and the Azusa streets revivals where people started speaking in tongues. Okay, someone has a emotional experience. Well, um, okay, just that's your experience. Uh, don't press it on the church. And I'm not so sure it's not people seeking experiences. I'm also convinced that it's a learned behavior. Uh, oh my gosh, if Johnny's doing doing it in church and he's a cool guy, maybe I need to do it. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm just giving you an illustration of the importance of church history. Uh, church history is not authoritative, but Scripture, Scripture is. So uh, let's let's turn um, let's turn to uh, Roman numeral one, which is the Scriptures, and uh, uh, A is inspiration and authority. So we believe in the inspired Word of God, and if it is the very Word of God. Um, it is authoritative. It is the church's ultimate authority. There are other authorities in the church. As a teaching elder or pastor, I have a measure of authority in the church. But the ultimate authority uh, is, is Scripture. 
So, the, so you can come to me and say, Phil, uh, uh, what's your authority to do what you just said? Well, um, I have a measure of authority. I think this is wise for the church. The other elders validate it. But ultimately, there has to be something in the scriptures. And if it's not, it should be a fairly wise thing. Like, you know, we happen to meet on Sunday mornings. Now, that meeting on, meeting is demanded. The time never is. We just establish what is a reasonable time. Uh, You know, if I said, uh, Grace Bible Church meets at uh, uh, 4.30 in the morning, it's not very reasonable. It's kind of silly. You know, uh, could do that. There'd be pretty poor results. But uh, so I, I think you understand what I'm trying to say. Um, there are other authorities uh, in in life. Um, elders have a certain measure of authority, and uh, but ultimately, what's your ultimate authority? Uh, obviously, it's Scripture, and it's important to realize it is authoritative. Yeah, uh, it, because it's divine. It's the divine word of God. Um, there are two forms. If you think of uh, the doctrine of knowledge, the technical word is epistemology. Uh, it comes from the Greek word epistemi, to know, or the study of knowledge. So hence epistemology. Volume, volume one is general or natural revelation. Um, namely, the revelation of God in uh, nature uh, or the creation. Because God is revealing his glory. Um, so, yeah, we look at the creative world and you've got to be kidding me. Uh, the sun is essential to life. Without the sun, we'd all die. That's incredible. Uh, of course, the, uh, uh, the natural man uh, suppresses that truth and unrighteousness and comes up with what I believe is absolutely bizarre theory like evolution. We, we just evolved over time. There was some big bang. Uh, to me, that's a logical fallacy because something doesn't come from nothing. Okay, uh, Something always has to come from something. Uh, uh, that's why we believe in the church. God creates ex nihilo out of nothing. And only he can do that. So he speaks the world into existence, and it's a measure, it's a general measure of the revelation of the glory of God. Uh, everyone in this room has a has something, uh, some place in their life that they think is very, very beautiful, whether it be the beach or the art museum or whatever the case might be, um, uh, particularly in the case of the beach or the mountains or the lake, um, uh, you go there and really it's a revelation of the glory of God because he, he made those things. Uh, case of Oklahoma, if you're going to the lake, we all our lakes are man-made, but behind that is the gifts that God made man. He gifted civil engineers. He gifted you know, guys that understand all that stuff and how to create lakes and where to build a, a dam. Uh, well, where'd those things come from? Well, in a sense, ultimately, they all come from God. Uh, you know, uh, uh, illustration in my case, I've 
a number of years ago, my, my family uh, went to Glacier National Park. To me, it's one of the most beautiful places in America. And when I look at Glacier National Park, I, I see the glory of God. And that's, that's what nature does. That's the, God's general revelation. So it tells you there's a creator. It tells you a little bit about him. Uh, but it doesn't tell you how he saves. Okay, because it's just general. It tells you there's a God. Uh, and generally, if there's a God, there's going to be judgment because we see judgment. Uh, why is there cancer? Why are there mosquitoes that spread malaria? There's some kind of measure of judgment going on here. Uh, well, we know that is the fall. God cursed the ground uh, because uh, Adam and Eve fell. Um, but the general revelation of nature and the creation doesn't tell us uh, how to come to know this particular God and how to be accepted by him. That is um, um, God's revelation in Scripture. Okay? Um, so it's a, if you will, a, the one is general, the other is special. And it's very special. It's his, it's his word. Um, and when you think about the word of God, there are two authors. Okay? For example, we know that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. God did not write the book of Genesis. Moses did. But God is the divine author. Because the words that Moses wrote were inspired. Okay? So there's a divine author. And that all of a sudden should cause us to sit up like I'm doing now and say, well, this is a very special word. Okay? Uh, uh, and I should, I should have enjoyment in it um, because of, uh, um, because of uh, what it is. Um, and if you, if you think about the history of the church, uh, well, you know, I mentioned to you the, the importance of, of uh, Scripture. Um, if you, if you turn to the West, if you turn to, if you have a red, a red hymnal, pardon me, uh, if you turn to the confession, uh, uh, chapter 848. Um, you can look at how uh, the authors of the Westminster Confession uh, understood uh, the boundaries or the canon of the Scripture. Uh, the word canon is literally a measuring device. So uh, how do we measure uh, as you may or may not know, uh, the Roman Catholic Bible includes more books than we do. Okay, so they reject our canon, and we reject theirs. Okay. So, look at uh, uh, look at um, uh, eight forty eight, uh, Roman numeral two, at there at the top, under the name of Holy Scripture or the Word of God, written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are, they're being specific. The Roman Catholic priest would look at that and say, wait a minute, you, you, know, you guys are missing a few. Well, we're saying they shouldn't be included in the canon. So over the history, the church is saying, these, these are the authoritative books. 
now look at uh, Roman numerals 9 and 10. Um, uh, and again, I'm just going to read to you a historic record of how the Reformed Church looks at Scripture. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. Okay. I'll think about that for a moment. And uh, what does it mean? Well, everybody in this room reads their Bible, and I hope you are. You occasionally come to passage and you say, oh my gosh, what in the world is that? Well, if you pay very, very close attention, um, the Scriptures will tell you what it is. Because God's not trying to be mysterious. You know, He's not trying to hide things from you. The context obviously becomes very, very critical. Uh, so the context is telling us what it is. Uh, so we have to maybe read a little bit before and a little bit after it. Uh, you will oftentimes hear me speak of when particularly there's citations in the New Testament of Old Testament verses speak of the context of the Old Testament text. Because, it, I mean, let's just say Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, which you're going to hear about this morning in the sermon, Lord willing, um, 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 you should say, well, well, what's the context? I mean, what's going on here? Uh, so the context is important, and also uh, biblical theology is important because uh, Moses, um, whom we're studying, just as an illustration, Moses is going to give you a measure of insight but the Apostle Paul, when he quotes Moses, just explodes the reality of it. Okay. Um, and that in and of itself is biblical theology. What, I mean, what is biblical theology? I mean, come on, Bowersock. Systematic theology, not biblical theology. Well, biblical theology is just simply the tracing of the history of doctrines. In the Old Testament, uh, it's another man's metaphor, but it's a beautiful metaphor. Uh, the Old Testament has every New Testament doctrine in seedling form. New Testament's the tree. So the seed sprouts and begins to grow in the Old Testament. Come to the New Testament, it's going it's to become a um, full-blown tree with fruit on it. Does that make sense? Uh, a tree doesn't start out as a tree. It starts out as a seedling. Seed. That's why, you, I mean, you're reading the New Testament. Jesus says, kingdom of heaven is like a tree. And Christians come to find shade under it, protection, uh, comfort. Um, some trees have fruit. Uh, tree is the source. Okay? So just a tracing of doctrines to the full-blown reality. So... Um, the infallible interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it might be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Okay, So the New Testament is a clearer revelation than the Old Testament is. Both a revelation, um, but the New Testament's adding clarity. Okay? That, that's the beauty of God. 
So he not only gives us his word, he tells us interpret it by the scripture itself, and there's clarity either in the context or from another author or whatever source. Uh, it's not because Moses was trying to be um, confusing. He just was dealing with what he knew at the time. Well, Paul knows more because he's a New Testament apostle. Okay, look at 10. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, Westminster Confession of Faith, opinions of ancient writers, commentators like John Calvin, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. Okay? That's the final authority of faith in life. Um, History is not authoritative, but it should shout at us, why am I doing this that was not done in the 18th century and 17th century? Um, So... It's not authoritative. Scriptures are scriptures authoritative. Okay. Um, um, let me uh, remind you of a critical fact, uh, particularly the Roman Catholic Church. Um, Roman Catholic Church churches authoritative author, authority is I would call a three-legged stool. One of the legs is Scripture. And as I just told you a moment ago, they they supplement the books. So they're adding to the canon received uh, in the early centuries of the church. So they certainly believe in Scripture, even though they've plussed it up a bit. Uh, uh, And um, they believe church traditions are authoritative. Okay, that's very important to understand that. Church traditions are authoritative. I think it's important to study traditions, but they're not authoritative. Okay, very critical to understand what I've just said. So they're now adding, adding to the authority of Scripture. Okay, I don't have any text in the Scripture that says traditions authoritative. Uh, and the last authority of the three-legged stool is the magisterium or the teaching ministry of the church. Okay, The Pope, on rare occasion, speaks ex cathedra or, or can say, thus saith the Lord. That becomes authoritative. Okay, We absolutely reject that stool. Because no man today can be authoritative. Um, so the Protestant doctrine is sola scriptura, scripture alone. Uh, and I want to stress to some, something to you that I will stress continually. If you delete the modifying adjective, you have substantively redefined the noun. Does that make sense? Uh, Roman Catholic Church does not believe in Scripture alone. So that's telling you something. 
We believe in the, the final authority. All matters of doctrine, faith, and life is Scripture alone. Roman Catholic Church adds two, two legs to that school. So they, so they reject the alone. So uh, they are redefining uh, the authority of God and expanding it to, cl- to include uh, church traditions and the magisterium. Does that help you? Uh, in other words, you delete the adjective, you are essentially redefining, perhaps is the better way to say it, redefining the noun. Okay. So, uh, you know, if you were to come to me with some issue, I would never say, well, the church fathers say this, therefore submit to it. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I like studying the church fathers. They're not authoritative. Scripture. I mean, these are critical issues. Um, uh, let's look at some other other traditions. Uh, uh, liberalism, uh, contemporary and essentially progressivism, says, well, the Bible is just another ancient book. If you like to read it, that's fine, but don't don't tell me to read it unless you want it unless you're taking, say, a literature class in poetry. English professor ought to look at the Psalms because they're ancient poetry, but probably never going to do that. So, um, uh, you know, just not. That's just liberalism. The Bible's not the Word of God. It's just another piece of literature uh, just like English poetry of the 17th and 18th centuries, another piece of literature. Um, uh, the other contemporary view is uh, neo-orthodoxy, um, that the Bible contains the Word of God. But when you validate it, you make it the Word of God for you. I mean, that's just bizarre, but that's what men do. Does that make sense? Uh, so it's not the Word of God until you say, hmm, I get that one. That really hits me hard. I understand that. I, uh, I, I've just experienced that. That's, that's the Word of God to you. So, they're, stri- so they're, they're really making God's Word and themselves as, as the authority. Um, uh, so again, I'm just giving you competing systems. Um, We're going to end there because of time. We're still uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, look at um, uh, some verses uh, because I have to kind of, you know, give to you some verses. If I leave verses out, you know, what have I told you? Well, I know what Bowersock thinks. What sayeth the Scriptures? Okay? All right. So let's, let's very quickly close uh, close up, close the time of prayer. Uh, our Father, bless us, uh, increase our desire to learn and to grow in the faith with the Scriptures, uh, increase our affection for the God of the Scriptures and for His uh, mighty Word uh, that leaves us a record of salvation, which we should be uh, profoundly thankful and appreciative of. And we... we uh, We are are thankful for the record that we have before us 
Uh, these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.